Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me David Little, CEO and Chief Consultant at the TCM Group, President of the People and Culture Association, best-selling author, HR influencer, and mediator. So welcome, David. Hi, thank you, Laura. Thank you for having me. I am very happy to have you here, especially because you're my first influencer. So, you know, I'm really going up in the world. (laughs) And so I want to start actually this by going back in time because sadly I don't have a time machine, but I've read that in the early 90s, you actually did a degree in community and race relations. And that really wasn't in vogue in the time from what I understand because I was about six years old. So what (laughs) actually led you there? Great question. So I wasn't I wasn't an academic child through school. I grew up in Nottingham in the East Midlands here in the UK. And yeah, I wasn't particularly strong at school. So I, I left school without necessarily the strongest results that you might have hoped for. So I didn't have an awful lot of choice of degrees, but I was always and had always been interested in exclusion. So I was, I was offered uh, an opportunity to, to join a relatively new degree, examining social policy, racism, community relations. And it was very new. It's just post Margaret Thatcher and John Major in the late, late 1980s and early 1990s. So I spent three years in my degree, really understanding the structural, social, economics, the structures around racism in our, in our society the consequences of racism and discrimination in, in wider sense, but we're very much centered in around racism and how discrimination and racism impacted communities and on the work that was being done within communities to address these issues, which quite frankly was pretty much zero. So we studied the 1981 riots, the 1985 riots. I was very interested in social unrest and social unrest as an expression of exclusion and discrimination and how social unrest could drive social change. So I became a bit of an activist. I got involved in the Students' Union. I ultimately became the president of the Students' Union. So I became quite an activist in that space and quite a big focus on on becoming an anti-racist before anti-racist was was a concept. But I also believe very, very, very strongly in the power of dialogue. So within the university that I was at, because it was kind of quite a left-wing institute we talked about this stuff a lot and there was a lot of focus on anti-racism within the university and my focus was always to try and bring people together so we had a black caucus and we had other student bodies within the organization and there was a persistent state of tension within the students union whenever I was chairing the students union meetings and within the SU there was tension so my focus was to create opportunities and moments for dialogue and collaboration which I did and it, and it worked. It was very powerful. And I was constantly looking at opportunities to explore the use of education, insight and dialogue to tackle exclusion and discrimination in all of its forms. I was then went down to Leicester. I worked for a small while in a tenants and residents association, just you know, kind of one of those in-between jobs that you have. And it took me right into the centre of an extremely deprived inner city estate And my job was to go out into the local community and listen to local community members and find out what their issues were and bring them back and translate them to the council and say, look, these are the issues that people are facing. And then building that into social and economic regeneration programmes. So I moved from a sort of theoretical space into the heart of inner city, very deprived inner city challenges. 
And I kind of experienced firsthand the exclusion, discrimination. I looked at the, the role of the state in tackling these issues, but I could see it. You know, I could see the role that the state were playing. This wasn't a theoretical or abstract concept. I was living it, you know, and breathing it day to day. And it was terrible. I mean, it was shockingly bad, shockingly bad. And, you know, notwithstanding one or two individuals, kind of activists in the community, community leaders, some healthcare professionals and others, on the whole, the statutory organisation, housing, police, health and others, were disregarding, I felt, serious health and social inequalities. They were more focused on you know, tackling crime than they were about tackling the causes of crime. They were more concerned about filling empty properties and void properties and collecting rent arrears than they were dealing with low-level um, antisocial behaviour and disputes within tenants. And there was a high level of marginalisation, particularly for single parents and Black minority ethnic communities, of course, which were heavily marginalised with very little voice and access to service provision and justice. I was like, you know, you can imagine as a coming out of a student who'd studied this and was quite passionate about it, then living it lit a fire in my belly but it never stopped I never stopped believing in the power of dialogue Mm -hmm. and I felt that it would be very easy at that stage as an activist to fall into other models of activism which I saw as being activism it felt to me polarized the tensions as being about there is an underclass or there's a group of people who are marginalised and we have to fight for the marginalised people in order to give them access to justice and access to health and other other economic opportunities. I could see the importance of community activism. I didn't deny the importance of it, but I didn't feel that was the best way to tackle Mm. the underlying issues. I felt the best way to tackle the underlying issues was through dialogue, through mediation restorative practices. So I started to get exposed to the principle. I'd never heard of mediation restorative justice, but there was some work being done in Bristol, a couple of projects in London. So I just went out and just started to learn about mediation and restorative justice. Thought, hey, this is exciting. This is really talking to me. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in this from a perspective of social activism, community activism, and dialogue building. So from that, I set up a small project in Leicester on a the Moeka Mediation Project is called the smallest state in Northwest Leicester. And I managed to wangle quite entrepreneurial, Laura. So I, I brought my entrepreneur skill and my activism skills into play quite early on. I managed to wangle quite a lot of money from various people. <laughs> Perfect results. Perfect results. I was kind of, I was, so you're I was already a, a talker, you know, you're ready, you were ready to be a mediator. You're already yeah. people, you're negotiating, you're getting the funds and you're getting it done. Yeah, exactly. And I managed to do that. But my I, so I was put into a, into an office in a housing set office out in in the outskirts of Leicester mm-hmm. again in a very deprived area and the housing manager just said to me look here's a phone here's a desk don't bother me I'm busy this ain't gonna never work but you managed to kind of get yourself a bit of cash good luck to you off you go and that was my manager pretty much mm-hmm. that was my first experience of management as well so <laughs> I wonder like, why you started to address HR and management issues well yeah <laughs> it was like don't don't come to me with any of your problems it was like, well, actually I got, in the end I got on quite well then because what happened is the the housing officers were dealing with antisocial behaviour fear, they were dealing with rent arrears, they were dealing with, but they weren't dealing with any of these problems very well, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. So it felt like they had a massive case management system. Very, you know, I would hear, I'd be in my office and suddenly there'd be like an alarm and a lockdown in the housing office and someone would be smashing up the front end of the reception. People were coming in really angry and they would kind of lock it down and 
the police would come and whisk the person away. And you could see the relationship between the housing department and the local community was fractious. It was, it was, it was, there wasn't no trust. There wasn't any mutual respect. And that's not to say all of them, one or two were good, but on the whole, it wasn't a very nice place to be. Mm-hmm. So I was little old me, or big old me, I'm six foot four. So, right, I've had enough of this. I'm going to get out and go out and start speaking to people. And I went off and started speaking to people. And suddenly the housing officers who were like dealing with all this antisocial behavior were like, who is this person? We, <laughs> who um, is this giant am- who is this, Who is this person? <laughs> who is it? I mean, they, I won't spot, I'm sure they had various names for me, but it's like, who is this? We hate dealing with this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a problem. It's nasty. It's unpleasant. We're dealing with a lot of underlying mental health issues, deep social deprivation, people living in squalid conditions with very little resource, poor, poor education. And he's going out and... Um, trying to bring them together what did he do it but suddenly it worked you go out and you start speaking to neighbor a and talk about their life and speak to neighbor b and talk about their life and get to know them a little bit show them a bit of respect and treat them with a bit of dignity and lo and behold they're decent people (laughs) (laughs) you know who knew that these did decent folk and that they've got problems and they've got stuff going on in their lives and they're doing some pretty nasty things i'm sure and some criminal things no doubt as well but they're not judging them, wagging a finger and tutting at them or blaming them for their, their lot. I'm just listening and being there. And who knew they start to respond and they start to come together and they start to engage in dialogue. You go, OK, well, who knew these people have capacity, they have skills, they have knowledge, they have, they, they have the ability to do stuff. And my job in the first year in the project was just to help them do their stuff. And I'd show between them and I'd bring them together every now and again. And some would work and some would miserably fail and some would boot me out of the house with expletives as I'm walking back down the street and others would embrace me with open arms and almost hug me to bring me into the house because they'd never experienced anything like it in their lives. I got through that first year, and I think I did about 100 mediations. In the, 111, I remember very clearly, it was 111 mediations in the first year. And uh, did you decide to stop at that number just so you'd have the nice one, one, one? Like, no, I didn't. The plan? It, 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 it worked. Well, no, because then people started to go, oh, what's all this about? So mm-hmm. I got started to ask to write reports for the local council. And I started to do presentations in other estates. And suddenly I started to get noticed and people were talking to me. I remember very clearly, I've got, I've got all of the documents. I sometimes go through them, Laura, just to remind myself where I started. So I've got all my little reports and all the leaflets and pamphlets and all the rest of it. So I loved, I loved all of that. But suddenly it went massive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I said, I was good at, I was good at finding pots of money and getting myself in there. So long story short, I then ran the project for seven years. It grew into a citywide, then a countywide, then a UK-wide project. And we went into schools and set up a project called CRISP, the Conflict Resolution in Schools Programme. I uh, did restorative justice in low-level criminality. I did victim impact work. And then we did restorative justice in serious, very serious offences, including up to unlawful killing and bringing families together. And it was a, it was the most amazing experience. But... It came to an end. And uh, then I went on to set up my own business. Well, before we go on to talk about your business, I actually want to go back for a second because something that struck me as you were talking about your experiences moving from studying race relations to then working locally in these housing projects is 
that in some ways your journey reflects that of Felicity Sedman, who obviously you'll know, she's at CEDA, and I also did the podcast with her about her experiences in apartheid South Africa working with um, workers' unions, right? And I kind of won because this is actually a similar moment in time. I mean, seeing what was happening in South Africa, do you think that that informed your approach and commitment to dialogue? Because I'm now kind of wondering about mediators generally, because it seems like this actual hot period of time might have been quite key to the development of mediation in a broader sense. I think so. I mean, if you look at apartheid and you look at Nelson Mandela and the incredible dignity that, that that he bought, I mean, and I was learning this at the same time as he was being released. And I think there was a sort of a sense that, I mean, I was very much focused on local conditions and local issues, Laura, but you had an eye on global conditions and global issues. So I think you know, there were many different factors and features. And I think there was a sense of, certainly here in the UK, but internationally, I think, of a general disdain and frustration with the way that conflicts, tensions, disagreements were being managed. And I felt that, I mean, I, I was on Mediation UK, so I became a director of Mediation UK, obviously no longer exists, which is a shame, really. And I always miss and regret Mediation UK, its demise. What Mediation UK, I think, was doing well was starting to, coalesce and bring people together within the UK who shared it, shared the passion, shared the experience. And it was also starting to build up some strong international links as well. So we could begin to to learn from each other and understand different models and different practices. But it feels like there was a a beginning of a movement through that early period of the early 90s, early to mid 90s. It felt like things were starting to grow and shape into something very exciting. Incredible. Okay, so... You've just mentioned your involvement with Mediation UK and that that no longer exists and that you moved yeah. on from the work you were doing because should I understand that that was the point at which you founded TCM? Yeah, it is. I mean, I kind of, again, the piece of work I was really interested in was around equality, diversity and inclusion. So I was doing a lot of work with the local authority, Leicester City Council, around EDI and restorative practices, which I thought was work together. And actually the lead from um, Leicester City Council put me in touch with two London boroughs, Hounslow and Croydon. So I was invited to go down to Hounslow and Croydon councils. I was starting to feel a little bit hemmed in by the, the charity. I had trustees and I was finding working in a charity was becoming limiting and my entrepreneurial spirit was being was being set me free it was, I needed to be set it's set free yeah and at the same time I was referred to Hounslow so I was invited to go and work with two large London boroughs Crap Croydon and Hounslow to develop their dignity work processes which incorporated restorative practices and I was also working with the cabinet office as a consultant to help them develop some practice around restorative justice in the workplace so I was starting to dabble in a bit of consultancy work just to feel my way through this. So I thought, well, I'd best go and do an MBA. So I went to register for an MBA and completed my MBA with distinction, having then studied the use of restorative justice, RJ, in these two large London boroughs, of which Hounslow is one, who I'm now working with. And the symmetry is wonderful because Hounslow Council are now adopting the resolution framework as an alternative to their discipline grievance and performance system so it's a kind of i've been working with them for 20 since i set up Goodness. so yeah so I, I quit the job sat on a park bench thought what am i going to do and came up with the name total conflict management because so i was really i loved japanese management systems i was inspired by the continuous improvement kaizen principles quality circles tqm which i learned about in the mba i thought i loved that stuff i thought 
you know, J- Japanese management systems were incredibly powerful and productive, and it made some of our management systems in the UK look downright out of date. And yeah, where, where we'd adopted some of those those sort of lean principles and just in time principles, I thought were very powerful. So I was really interested in just in time lean TQM management systems. And I was also interested in integrated conflict management systems, ICM apps, and the concept of whole systems development of conflict resolution. So stuff coming out of Harvard and Cornell, there was a few bits being written about ICM apps. So I put TQM and ICMS together in a bucket and stirred it up and came up with total conflict management. I it. love the name, actually. It's so like, we will fix all of the conflicts. We're here. I love it. Have no chance. <laughs> It was, and it was, it was an attempt. It wasn't a company name. I didn't come up with it as my company name. I came up with it as a philosophical framework that could then be rolled into organisations to systematise the resolution of conflict. And I saw, and I thought to myself, if quality is at the heart of effective management systems within our organisations, then the management of conflict is the other side of that coin because conflict impedes value in the value chain. It undermined quality processes. It distracted managers and, and other actors in the workplace. So it felt like if we could follow quality systems within the organisation and the adoption of quality systems and use the same approach for conflict resolution, I felt it became a very meaningful part of a management lexicon to how we deliver quality. So I was very keen to, to use quality management as the principles for conflict resolution. So I learned a lot about quality systems and quality management and then tried to hang conflict. So it was unashamedly hanging conflict <laughs> on the coattails of quality management. But it was the worst branding nightmare. And who wants to work <laughs> with a company called Total Conflict Management? And the, the logo was massive. And it was, you know, tried, I didn't have any marketing people. So we're kind of scribbling logos on the back of a beer mat and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it made sense in my head. Mm-hmm. And, you know, suddenly it makes sense in a few other people's heads. They start going for it and organisations are getting me in and they're liking it. But what happened, I think, is I wanted to do this whole systems, conflict resolution, total conflict management and actually what organisations wanted was someone to come in and put out the fires from failed systems and come in as a mediator. And of course, mediation was my first passion, my first love. Like, yeah, that's what I'll do. See, I've got this vision for being in the boardroom and reshaping and repurposing all of the organisational systems, redefining concepts of value, redeveloping systems and processes. But what I was actually doing was coming in with a bag over my head at night to try and fix the problems <laughs> that were going on in the workplaces because of these failed systems. Wow. But it was all right, paid the bills, so I'm not going to argue. Um, <laughs> and, you know, got a bit of a reputation for doing a decent, half-decent job. And then I kind of just deconstructed that. I created our course, the National Certificate in Workplace Mediation. I created the FAIR model, facilitate, appreciate, innovate, resolve. I'm a big fan of models and developing frameworks i mean i've read one of your books and it is full of fantastic models and acronyms i'm just here like yes give me another acronym please david like what's this one gonna be you just mentioned the fair model i want to talk a bit about this uh this book of yours that i read transformational culture yeah Uh, and i know you've just finished a second edition of managing conflict as well right yes you write more books than i think is healthy um it's very impressive it scares me a little bit you know how i feel about people getting enough sleep Um, and so, yeah, so in this book, Transformational Culture, you talk about a workplace culture as being fair, just, inclusive, sustainable, and high-performing. And so it seems like there's a, a clear link with the previous work you'd done in terms of mediation and inclusivity, plus high-performing. And so 
How did you actually come up with this specific combination of five factors? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it took a lot of time for me to sit down because, you know, I was doing a lot of work around culture. So immediately suddenly you kind of start working with the board and suddenly my aspirations start to come dry. I'm starting to work at board level. I am starting to influence strategy. I'm starting to influence systems and processes. So I'm in a really good place and starting to learn a lot about what I understood was wrong with organisations, but also what I felt could work. And I've got this very interesting perspective on organisations. I hadn't just picked up an OD book or learned from an OD or an HR perspective. I'd been in the basements dealing with the stuff and looking up, which was quite a unique position. So from that very unique perspective of being in the bottom looking up rather than at the top looking down, I could see what I think was wrong and where I also think systems could be developed that could begin to shape and develop a positive workplace culture, not just from a moral and ethical perspective, although morals and ethics have always been key to my work. I've never done things purely for morals and ethics. Mm -hmm. I honestly believe as well that if we do morals and ethics, values, integrity, right, then it can deliver good, high-performing organisations. And I'm not afraid of profit, although I don't think profit is the only measure of success. I think social value and shareholder value are equal, maybe not quite equal, but are critical measures of success in the modern organisation. Keep reeling it back. <laughs> yeah, maybe not quite. I'm scared of profit. I mean, there's other things. But the fact that I can say that in the same sentence and, you know, people who are kind of concerned about issues of organisational success measured in terms of shareholder value and wealth probably aren't going to roll their eyes at that statement and go, this is just crazy. Of course, organisations aren't about social value. Of course, they're not about stakeholder value. They only exist to deliver wealth for the shareholder. I think there's a fantastic debate, which we obviously can't get into today. But there's another conversation to be had about concept of value and how cultures and people relationships can drive value. And what do we mean by that? I'm very locked into that, very interested in that discourse. So the idea behind the just, fair, inclusive, sustainable and high performing was because I, I thought, what does good look like? And what are the outcomes of good? And how can we achieve good? And people were telling me the justice systems were broken, retributive and adversarial. They're about blame, shame, punishment, delivering harm rather than healthy outcomes. So the first measure is to redefine what we mean by justice. And I was, you know, I'm a mediator, I'm a restorative justice practitioner. Justice is my trade is my profession, but when you look at other justice models, retributive justice model, the model of choice that's embedded in all of our organisations in one form or another, it is broken, it's a broken, tired and dreary system which causes harm. So the just talks to a model of justice which is transformative, which is about dialogue, collaboration, accountability, because accountability is important, but you can still deliver accountability through a non-retributive system. So I saw the repurposing of justice being really, really very critical. The concept then of equity and fairness is absolutely central. And people's perception of being treated fairly in the workplace. You know, I've got children. The first value that they express is, they've got more to be. You know, it's the first value that we express as a human being, that, that notion of I'm not being fairly treated. And when I'm not fairly treated, that feeling of loss, which can create despair and suspicion and a breakdown in trust. So trying to rethink about how organisations can be fair through the justice model, giving everyone a voice in the organisation. And of course, as mediators, that's what we do. We give each person a voice. We don't judge. We don't talk. We don't start wagging fingers at them, telling them they've been naughty boys and naughty girls. That's not what we do. We let them have their voice and say what's important. 
and value that voice and listen to to understand we listen to to try and really get a deep sense of empathy and connection with people where so much listening is to listen to defend what we're saying in the organizations but very defensive so really including people and helping people be the best versions of themselves by including them in a process so they can shine rather than diminishing them and damaging them which i think happens so much in our organizations and sustainability i think is, is clearly if we're not thinking about our cultures and our relationship with the planet and our ecosystems and locally within our local ecosystems where we learn, work and live and play and also more widely globally that our you know our organizations will ultimately contribute to the destruction of our planet so that has to be that it's also about building sustainable outcomes internally as well mm-hmm. and finally the high performance as you referenced is an outcome because if we aggregate all of that together, then we begin to feel happy and healthy and we begin to perform. Now, what that performance looks like is not like me and a mediator. I don't care what your outcome is. As long as you two can find an outcome that you're happy with that meets your needs, that's not, my, that's not for me to care about. And it's the same in an organization. How you measure your performance and your outputs and your outcomes, that's not for me to define. My role here is to help create the conditions whereby you can do the thing that's important to you with everyone there having a sense of common purpose and unity behind that and being part of that and connected to that sense of purpose. And that's so I'm taking that mediation thinking and just taking it into a kind of cultural model. Thank you so much for the exploration exploration explanation. I don't know what happened there. Exploration exploration as well. It is an exploration. By trying to give an explanation. Yes, well, thank you on both accounts. <laughs> and there's actually one thing I wanted to gain clarity about while I've got you here. Because when I was reading your book, and you do obviously talk about restorative justice a lot, and you just mentioned it as being quite fundamental to your work. But there was something that surprised me a little bit, especially given how you've just described an approach to transformational culture. And that's that you talked about it as minimizing harm. Whereas, and maybe this is me coming from the political science background, right? Mm. When I think about restorative justice in that non-legal sense, I'm thinking about restoring them, right? So it's not just minimizing harm, it's not doing harm and maybe leaving them better than you found them almost because you're restoring them to some kind of better state. And so I was just wondering what led to this perhaps slightly conservative approach to justice, given everything you've just said about being inclusive and fair and having people feel good they can perform. Yeah, I don't disagree with what you've said. I think one of the overarching philosophies of a mediator is to do no harm and to create a condition which reduces the propensity of harm. So I think that's a starting point for myself. I think we probably both agreed that the objective then of the process is to try and help the parties to coalesce around an agreement which optimizes their relationship yeah i just remember reading in your book that it said restorative justice is about reducing harm and it just surprised me that it would be reducing harm as opposed to restoring people but it is it is restoring but i think if you look at restorative justice in a criminal justice setting where an offense is being committed by an offender against a, a victim Mm-hmm. there are certain factors that give rise in that restorative process mm-hmm. the offender needs to demonstrate some form of remorse and needs to be an acceptance of culpability and responsibility for the individual and the event and the harm has been committed in the restorative justice process is very much about rebuilding some sort of a life for the parties beyond the harm that's been committed the chances of further harm in that relationship would only really come from the restorative process because they're unlikely to have an ongoing relationship 
Whereas in a workflow, mm-hmm. the restorative processes aren't triggered by maybe a single event of harm or a single offence, if we use the language from the criminal justice system. It's an ongoing relationship breakdown or a series of events or activities between the two actors. And the two actors then have a continued relationship in the workplace, whereby the restorative process is restoring some form of a relationship based on trust, mutual respect, sense of valuing one another's contribution. But it's also about reducing the harm built into the relationship on an ongoing basis. So there's an ongoing relationship between the actors through a restorative process in a workplace environment that you wouldn't have where you work in a sort of classic restorative justice intervention, maybe in a criminal justice system. So the reduction of harm in that sense is about creating an environment whereby the two actors in that case are able to have continued positive dialogue, opportunities and moments where they can give in each other feedback, reflections, more constructive, more respectful interactions between the actors. And in that sense, it is about reducing harm over the longer term. That actually makes so much sense because I remember reading at the time and going, why does he want to reduce harm? Is some harm allowed? But of course, I was coming from the social perspective where I'm thinking about, you know, huge social groups and thinking about race relations again, for instance. What does it look like for justice to be restorative in that context, right? And does it involve repayments for past harms, for instance? Uh Does it involve restoring people given a dearth of opportunities or a generational trauma or what have you? Does it involve making up for that? So I came from this social perspective and I was so confused, but you've clarified that really nicely for me. And it's a really interesting point around reparation. So if you were, if I was doing a restorative justice intervention in a community setting or in a criminal justice setting, there can be some form of reparation that may be undertaken as an outcome from the restorative justice process. Whereas in a workplace setting, there's very little opportunity for a reparative outcomes for reparation it's a really interesting point and I was actually working with an organization looking at a mechanism whereby they might be able to introduce some form of reparation through a restorative process in the workplace but of course it's limited you know we can't go and clean a wall or you know mow garden or rebuild a fence or whatever there might well be as a reparation as you might see from a classic RJ outcome so there's less there's a lot less opportunity for that in the workplace so the reparation comes through an agreement or a psychological contract between the actors about how they will interact with each other to reduce the propensity for them to experience harm, trauma, division, relationship breakdown, stress in the future. That is in itself the restorative element to it, but it is slightly different. So it's using, I think I'd probably say it's more drawing on those restorative principles mm-hmm. than it is drawing on restorative justice per se. It's why I call, I call it more transformative justice than yeah, restorative yeah. justice, I guess. I don't know if that helps. <laughs> no, it does. Absolutely. Thank you. And yeah, what you've said makes a lot of sense. So that was my tricky question. So we'll get back well, to we've it. worked through it. <laughs> <laughs> like exam or mark here. Oh, he gets an A. Because the last thing I really wanted to, to talk about is actually something you touched on briefly earlier. And that is social value, right? Because, I mean, you're talking about these organizations where you're going in, you're putting in these total conflict management system, you've got this transformative justice or restorative justice, or whichever justice. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. And so do you think there are spillover effects of changes within organizations to the broader social context of individuals working in its organizations? Uh, I think it's a really, really important question. I think the answer is most definitely a resounding yes. 
I don't think this is the only factor that's causing that to happen. However, I think, you know, certainly through COVID, George Floyd's murder, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, continued focus on climate justice, you know, the fact that we don't seem to be having a conversation post-COVID and we really urgently need to have a conversation about health and social inequalities that were, that were highlighted through, through COVID, but people can see them and people can feel them and they've not gone away. And all of these so organisations are microcosms of all of this stuff going on. And people are coming into organisations now that experience a very different style of working, whether it was hybrid working or whatever the model is that's used. And that's not going to go away or change anytime soon. So the notion of work has changed uh, dramatically over the last sort of three years and probably has been for a number of years for a while before that. But organisations haven't kept up, Laura. That's my concern. Leaders have not been equipped with the skills they need in order to be able to manage this very new style of work. HR is still reliant on a set of processes and a rule book and a rules-based system that was designed in the 80s and 90s, which is so horrendously out of date, it's so horrendously outmoded, that they don't have the ability to address these issues. And our managers don't have the skills and the competencies and the capabilities. They're not even measured or rewarded on the stuff that they need to be able to be equipped for dealing with this stuff. But it's inexorable and it's undeniable and it's not going to stop. Social justice and social the concept of social value, employee activism are coming into our organisations and organisations are having to act now mm-hmm. to address these issues because if they're not, we see every day in the newspapers or coming out of our Amazons or whatever the devices that we have given us the news feeds of these breakdowns and you know, the, the word toxic culture, mm-hmm. you know, like all of these short phrases is convenient soundbite for the media, but it talks about harm and destroyed relationships, destroyed lives, abuses of power, misogyny, racism, bullying, you know, deep divisions within our workplaces, inability to resolve differences, people disagreeing in a violently negative and destructive way. So the word toxic culture, it's a nice catchphrase. It sounds good on a media soundbite, but it talks about very seriously broken relationships and, and structures within our workplaces. And I've been predicting this. I'm not trying to claim some sort of, uh, some sort of a ability to see in the future but I was going into organizations and saying this is broken mm-hmm. your systems and processes and rule-based system is broken mm-hmm. and I think the chickens are coming home to roost for a great many organizations now so I think you know organizations having to rethink their social contract and what I mean by the social contract is the way that we design our, our organizations and bring it in employees people professionals managers leaders got big conversations about what does it mean to be in the world of work mm-hmm. leaders redefining the concept of what is leader for me a leader is someone who generates leadership in others there's a very simple idea i have in my head of what it means to be a leader your job as a leader is to create leadership in others in order to be able to create leadership in others you need to understand them their strengths their challenges their opportunities we need to invest in them and listen to them and we need to critically not be threatened when that leader becomes brilliant and i don't see that person as a threat so allyship skills, conflict resolution skills, needed negotiation skills are critical skills for our leaders, but we're not developing those. Mm-hmm. And they sit within the schools of positive psychology, all the stuff we use as mediators, appreciative inquiry, nonviolent communication, which they could all do with a dose of Marshall Rosenberg, you know, to help deal with these issues on a day-to-day basis. So I think it's it's coming out organizations and it's what I you as an organization leader, HR director a manager, a union leader, are you ready 
Because if you're not ready, it ain't going to go, oh, you're not ready, we'll wait till you're ready. It's going to come at you. And if you're not ready to deal with this stuff, your organisation will either fail in a blaze of social media publicity and all of the stuff that we've seen in so many organisations, it will be a very, or it'll be a very slow, creeping, losing top talent, losing good people, losing all of the value that you have built up within the organisation, slow reputational harm and damage, and a slow creeping death of that organisation with competitors circling you. Um, so I would say social value, employee activism, repurposing our way we think about leadership, rethinking some of our HR systems, redefining the rule book in our organisation, ripping out retributive justice and replacing it with the stuff that we promote as mediators, that to me defines the notion of a successful company measured in terms of attracting the top talent, the best customers, the top investors, driving organizational success with everyone a part of that. Or I'm afraid to use an F word at the very end of our podcast, <laughs> failure, I think. <laughs> oh my goodness. You know, I was going to allow you. I'm like, I'm Australian. I'll be offended, but failure, oh my goodness, it hits hard, right? <laughs> Amazing. And so that was a very intense call to action. I mean, I had images of sharks circling, there was blood in the water, and then there was failure, my goodness. And so, I mean, do you think organisations actually have a role to play in changing society rather than just society changing organisations? No, because organisations are society. So it's not that organisations change society. I think the concept of an abstract or esoteric society that exists outside of the door of the organisation is anathema. The organisation is society. We spend, as individuals, so much of our time in the workplace. It creeps into so many aspects of our lives. We bring us into the organisation. You know, I, I was at a conference recently and I heard a quote. I can't claim it's my own quote, but it's a quote that really resonated with me. Is organisations borrow their people from their families and we need to give them back to their families in good shape at the end of the day. And what I really liked about that is it connects the individual, their life outside the work and their life inside the work. So organisations, the organisations that are successful will continue to thrive in the future. And the future organisations, the ones that we don't know about yet, Nora, will be the ones who get this stuff and get it right. And they see they have a critical role to play in the concept and notion of society and societal good. And that, again, goes back to the redefinition of value and opposition in the world. Organisations which are beginning to understand their position in the world, you know, B Corporation certification is one example of many others which organisations can use that makes a clear statement about their position in the world and their position in the local community. I personally believe with the organisations that have a competitive advantage in the future. And your point about shark circling, they are circling. You know, speak to any chief executive of an organisation that's been on Twitter or any social media channel or in the news or in the HR press or elsewhere, who've had people going in talking about toxic cultures or had whistleblowing, it's it's happening right now. It's happen- It's there. I think to me, it's there. It's it's playing out. And I guess as a mediator, first and foremost, I can see the conflict and I can see the tension. But I can also see the call for action. And as I said at the very start, I am an activist and an entrepreneur as well as a mediator and a restorative justice practitioner. So all of those all of those lights are lighting up in my head, <laughs> and I see opportunities. I see risks, and I'm fearful in many sense, but I see huge, huge opportunities for us as a mediation movement to step up. The world needs us right now. And it's, you know, we can step up 
and be part of a societal shift. You know, I'm, I'm trying to learn more about toxic masculinity at the moment and trying to understand the concept of toxic masculinity. So I'm watching as many documentaries as I can about men and what it means to be a man in our society at the moment and trying to get a sense of the culture wars and what did the culture wars mean and the work Andrew Tate and Piers Morgan and various other actors who are out there driving the conversation about society and the culture wars and culture wars equals conflict conflict equals mediation mediation mm -hmm. equals opportunity mm -hmm. so as a mediator i see the culture wars whether they're played out on social media being played out in our society being played out in the states you know that the stuff at the moment that we're preparing for the 24 election i mean goodness me you know if that's not going to highlight the culture wars what is as a mediator i see that as a call to action Mm -hmm. I see that as an opportunity. And I'd love to see more mediators being part of the culture wars. I'd love to see more mediators getting in there and trying to bring peace in the culture wars. And we see, you know, you've been part of it yourself. You know, we see so much peace building work going on around the world, but we also need a lot of peace building work going on in the culture wars as well. And I see the culture wars as being a whole new area, the mediation practice globally, where I think mediators could be stepping in and creating a very powerful but a very respectful discourse between opposing views because I worry having got kids and you know concerned about these things as a parent and a citizen as much as anything else I worry that this is going unchecked mm -hmm. that as a we're not doing anything about it to bring some form of peace building and dialogue building into that frame so that'll be one area that I'm really ex interested in exploring now at the moment is the concept of peace building in the culture wars well hey that's part of the reason i have this podcast right to yes. get all these experts in talking about social conflict and what we can do about it so is there anything else i should have asked you but i haven't that is a great question i mean i guess the only thing i am doing just really i'm really interested in human resources it's the human resources function so i've recently launched a new website called peopleandculture.com to try and help the HR function, reimagine what it means to be an HR. Because my final point, really, and it's a point that I'm really excited about, is could the HR function in our organisation release itself from being a long arm of management or the stooge of management? Stooge. Oof. Great word. Yeah. It's a yeah. challenging word as well. And many in HR okay. would be throwing rotten tomatoes to hear me say that. But that's how people perceive them. And there's a massive breakdown in trust and a deep suspicion of HR because the perception is they are a long arm of management. Mm -hmm. If HR can embrace that, not as a defensive response to an attack from someone who's attacking them, but see that as an opportunity to reimagine what it means to be an HR and release themselves as an arm of management, drop terms like business partner and become people partners, become a people and culture function, could the HR function become an independent objective function in our firms and our organizations? And could they become a mediating function within the organization? Mm -hmm. Now, many people are suspicious of HR. And indeed, in many organizations where I go to embedded mediation programs, and I was talking to Intel Corporation yesterday, and as with many others, they wouldn't put mediation into the HR function because there's an intrinsic suspicion of HR. So I'm on a one-person mission at the moment to repurpose HR as an independent objective function to do everything that we do as mediators and to instill that and institutionalize that within the organization, within the people and culture function. And that is a really exciting opportunity to take mediation and maximize its potential 
by creating an institutional function who centered around the principles of mediation called the people and culture function. So I'm, I'm actively out there now, and that's a book I've just been commissioned. Another book, Lo, are you going to be? Oh my goodness. Another Calm one. down. You're making the rest of the well, stuff that, David. Um, exploring the concept of people and culture as a mediating function in our firms. Mm, great. Which I'm excited about. So that'll be coming out in 2025. All right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that. And I think that, you know, you're not just an army of one. I'm definitely going to be fighting that battle with you as well. <laughs> Although I do always find it a bit funny to be using these very violent metaphors and talking about mediation, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, David, thank you so much for joining me today. And for those who are interested in learning more about your work, which I assume is everybody, where can they find you? Uh, well, thank you. So I'm on LinkedIn a lot, probably just a little bit too much. So you can track me down on LinkedIn. The company's called the TCM Group. So if you go to the tcmgroup.com, that's going to give you a, a good place to go to and just find out a little bit more about work. So the two texts, as you mentioned earlier, Managing Conflict, the second edition comes out in October, but the first edition is available on Amazon and other booksellers. And Transformational Culture, similarly, is available on Amazon, both published by Kogan Page. And yeah, there's other other ways of tracking me down. If you just drop me into Google, you'll probably find me. (laughs) Well, I mean, I turned up in your office the other day, so you're, you're very easy to track down. There is that. There's that as well. And of course, I should say, I've got a wonderful team and, you know, I couldn't do this. I couldn't even be here sat talking to you without a team of incredible people who make all of this stuff come to life. So, you know, I must acknowledge the incredible team based in London, in Islington, just an incredible team. And also I've got about 100 odd consultants who are out doing work around the globe. We work globally doing all of this stuff. So, you know, I've probably finished the podcast by acknowledging their incredible efforts, endeavours to make all of this stuff come to life. Like, so it gives me a chance to come on to podcasts and chat. <laughs> I love that. No, it's a very good vibes way to finish a podcast, that's for sure. And so thank you again, David. And for everybody else, until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict Giving Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.